Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. If you're, if you're not familiar with uh, finding books in the Old Testament, you can find Lamentations about midway, two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. It's right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then there's two major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then right after Jeremiah is Lamentations. As you're finding that, let me tell you what our direction is for the next few weeks. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to start a series on the New Testament letter of James. We just finished up a series through the Old Testament prophet Malachi. And next week, I'll be out of town, and Robert will be preaching a standalone message, and then we'll work through the New Testament letter of James. And in this kind of in-between period where we're finishing one series, going through one book, and then about to start another, I like, it's, it's sort of my custom pastorally to when I have a, an opportunity to do a, a, an isolated individual message like this on a text, to, to just take us through some of the more beautiful, well-known, glorious passages in all the Bible. And I think Lamentations chapter 3 is one of those chapters. And in the middle of Lamentations chapter 3, there's a few verses that I think are, are it's just a foundation for our understanding of God and the Christian life. And so I want us to think about that this text this morning. We are, our hearts are constantly being tugged to be satisfied with false gods, counterfeit gods, things that want to demand our worship and demand our affections. And we live in a world that's just absolutely broken. It's, it's sinful, we're sinful, the world around us is sinful, and the Christian life can be a, a real challenge. And the great challenge, the great battle, in fact, I think the spiritual battle of the Christian life is, is knowing who can satisfy our souls. And I think Lamentations chapter 3 has a, a wonderful answer to this question that I think is at the very core of every human's heart. Where can I find satisfaction? In fact, there was a, a famous song written by a rock band back in the 70s, which I didn't quite understand their popularity. I was just a young child. I thought they were kind of goofy. But this anthem really of this generation is, I can't get no satisfaction. But I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. And that's the anthem of this world. And this text, I think, has a, an answer for that cry of the human heart. Let me read Lamentations 3, verses 20 through, 22 through 24, just to, to read our, our, our hallmark text in this passage. And then, then we're going to work our way through this whole chapter quickly. Lamentations chapter 3, verse Verses 20 through, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, for this chapter, for this beautiful book nestled in the Old Testament that, that acquaints us, that is so real and is so acquainted with life. Thank you that you have caused lamentations to be written into the, the Bible to give voice to this life that we experience. Lord, help us now to understand this text, to understand this chapter, to understand this message that you have written for us through this prophet by your Holy Spirit. Make us more like Christ. Wean us from this world and woo us to yourself. And for my friends that are in this room that don't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would give them a new heart and eyes to see so that they would be transformed and made new and that they would be able to hope in Christ and that they can say with this text that the Lord is their portion. Therefore, we will hope in him. Do it all, I pray, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. The context, just to give us a setting, when every time we dive into a passage like this without starting it from the beginning and working our way through the whole book, I think it's helpful for us to understand the context of Lamentations. First thing I want to I say is that just take note of the fact that there is a book of the Bible called Lamentations. I, I want us to be strangely encouraged by that. There's a book of the Bible named Lamentations. So if you are struggling, if you're lamenting, if things are not quite like they should be in your life, and you feel this strange disconnect with much of Christian culture, because the Christian culture maybe that you were part of or that you were in tries to paint everything as being wonderful when you know that everything is not wonderful. The Bible actually is very real and honest about the fact that everything in this fallen world after Genesis 3 is not wonderful. It, we have a book in the Bible called Lamentations. So, so take heart in that. And the context of Lamentations is that it was written very likely by the prophet Jeremiah. That's why it comes right after Jeremiah's big prophetic book called Jeremiah, written very likely by Jeremiah, right around the time of Israel in the Old Testament being besieged, being taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. So it's similar to what we've just been working through in Malachi, where Malachi, the people are, it's a little before the time of Malachi, Malachi was God speaking to the people, calling them to faithfulness as they're in captivity. Where we are right now in Lamentations is God's people are, have been, Jerusalem, the city, has been sacked. It's been besieged. It's been destroyed and taken over by the Babylonian Empire. And all of this was according to God's design and plan because Israel disregarded God's warnings in the Old Testament because they did not obey him, because they chased after false gods, God through the prophets would warn them that if they continued on this path, that he would send this empire to come and, and take them captive and to punish them for their sins. And that in fact happens. 
And now Jerusalem, this beautiful city, this epicenter of, of worship in, amongst God's people in the Old Testament has been destroyed. The Babylonians have now taken over. These beautiful Old Testament books like Daniel or Daniel and these, these, these other Hebrew young people have been taken off into captivity. That's happened. And Jeremiah is now looking over the tradition has it that he was in a cave that was very close to where Jesus was crucified, whether we know that's true or not, but that's what tradition amongst Jewish scholars would hold, is that Jeremiah is in this cave looking over Jerusalem, seeing really the, the, the smoke still rising from the ruins, lamenting, that's why it's called lamentations, lamenting over the disobedience of God's people and the destruction that God has brought and now the state of things. And so that's what Lamentations is all about. And verse, chapters 1 and 2 are really uh, I, uh, Jeremiah talking about how God has done all this. And chapters 4 and 5 are, are talking about, again, how God has done all this. But it's kind of like a pyramid. Chapter 3 serves as the kind of, the, the kind of tip of the mountain where he finds in the middle of chapter 3 this beautiful truth about God's faithfulness. So to help us understand this text, I'm going to give it two headings. First, I want to look at Hope Forgotten. And then hope found, hope forgotten, and hope found. So let me read the first section of Lamentations. Lamentations 3, verses 1 through 18. And remember, this is Jeremiah speaking, taking really identification for all of Israel, speaking from the first person, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem and his people. Lamentations 3, let me read the first 18 verses. And notice who's doing Notice, notice Jeremiah's perspective. Verse 1, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. The he who's doing this now, remember, is God. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Now, I just want to pause here and, and remind you of two things. One, that the experience, I've said this numerous times when we look at an Old Testament passage, the experience of Israel in the Old Testament is a kind of picture of the, of the experience of the Christian life. So I think it's right, interpretively, for us to read, the, the, uh, in a sense, kind of personal experience into this. And just notice here how different this is with, with many people's conception of God. Um, this, this doesn't make it into a painting or a poster that you sell at Lifeway in the trinket section, you know? I mean, God's crushing the people here. Verse 10, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. Put that on a poster and sell it. <laughs> he has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. 
I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul, verse 17, is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Wow. So clearly in verses 1 through 18 here, Jeremiah is speaking about hope forgotten. I want us to reflect on a few, a few things, a few reflections about hope forgotten. Three reflections that we can think about. First, because of sin around us and sin in us, things are not as they should be. And that's one of the reasons I love the brutal honesty of the Bible. That's why I commend to us reading through books of the Bible. You will discover things about how God deals with his people, about the honesty of the Bible with the human condition that you will not discover if you just kind of cherry pick and read single verses that are in devotionals. I'm all for devotionals, but don't like make that your, your only habit or your only diet of reading the Bible. Take in whole books of the Bible where you read Lamentations chapter 3 in the first 18 verses where it's very honest about how the people are in dire straits because of sin around them and sin within them. If we took the time to read chapters 1 and 2, you would see that, 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 that Jeremiah is clearly attributing all of Israel's predicament to their sin and God's promise to do what he would do if they rejected him. And he's saying all of this along, this is what God was saying he was to do. He has done what he said he would do. And we are in the bed that we have made for ourselves. But we need to understand that the world is broken. We are, as Christians, living between two worlds, the kingdom that is coming and the kingdom that is and I want to encourage us before we move on. Just the reason I think this is important is I want to encourage us. I think we as Americans are particularly vulnerable to not being really dealing with reality, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Uh, amongst many of the blessings that God has given us as a nation, blessings can also be cursings. And, and I think something that we as a culture are particularly vulnerable to is an overly triumphalistic view of life. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have, because of modern society and all of the comforts of society, we tend to expect things to be comfortable and to go our way. And we tend to bring that into our sort of unstated spiritual expectation of God. And we tend to bring it into church culture. And so we, we, we gather and we don't have place for lament. In fact, you know, there's, there's 150 psalms, chapters. Those are, those are songs of the Old Testament. And in a sense, psalms is like the, the Hebrew hymn book for God's people in the Old Testament. And of those 150, many of them are songs of lament, songs of sorrow. So when God's people would worship and gather, they wouldn't sing just happy, happy songs. They wouldn't sort of check their experience at the door. They would come and they would lament. 
And my concern sometimes for, for church culture or just Christian culture in America is that, is that we have an overly triumphalistic view where everything when it comes to church culture and spiritual experience has to be awesome or it's not good. And friends, that's just not the way life is. This, if you think that, then it, it's, it's trying to bring too much of heaven. It's trying to experience too much of heaven here. Now, yes, we want, we want to pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if all of life is about things being awesome here, we miss sight of what God is really preparing us for, which is there. And so I want, I want to encourage you to be suspicious and, and, and question a type of Christianity that calls for everything here to be prosperous and triumphalistic and awesome because it's not. I am not saying that we should get chains and whips and beat ourselves and wander off into the desert. You see, there's a balance there. I'm not saying that we should be spiritual masochists and run towards trouble. I'm saying that a mature Christian kind of has a, a, a sort of a sense of the tension of the Christian life. That, th that this world is not as it should be. And we were made for the next. Which then leads me to the second reflection of, 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 of these first 18 verses in Hope Forgotten. Is that, that life, life in a fallen world is cloudy and confusing. It really is. We, we, we cannot fully understand all things around us. We, even the, the wisest and smartest and most intelligent of us, we all have a limited view. J Jeremiah writes chapter 3 as one who has forgotten hope. And it can be easy to get there. It can be very easy to get there. Even the strongest among us, even those who, whom God has made with just a real strong sort of spiritual constitution, in just a moment, you can get to a place where Jeremiah is in Lamentations chapter 3. Maybe it's because of some sin on your part. It has brought you to this place where everything is cloudy and confusing. Or maybe it's some sin that's, that's occurred around you and, 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 and you're suffering the consequences. Or, like all of us, it's a kind of combination. Sin inside of us and sin in, outside of us has, has conspired to make life confusing. And it obscures our view of God and reality. And perspective is slippery. It's like a... It's just like a wet bar of soap. It's hard to hold. It, it, you lose grip of it quickly. So I, I think Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that, 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 this, that, that we are right now looking at a mirror dimly. It's foggy. It's foggy. It, we're, we're, like, we're like driving in a car where there, it's muddy and rainy, and, and, and the windshield, we can see through it kind of, but we got to go slow, and we need our high beams on, and we need a bunch of people around us telling us, well, we, we, go slow, watch out, watch out, watch out. And that's why we need to, we need to live together. Because this world is, is, is cloudy and confusing, and because none of us see rightly, friends, we need each other. And when I say need each other, you need to do more than just physically locate yourself in a building with other believers once or twice a week. You really need to be known. 
I want to commend to you, I, I think one of the things that might set the culture of Crosspoint apart from other churches, and don't in any way hear me say that we're better than other, not, not, I'm not saying that at all. But one thing that I, I want to commend to you that I think is of value here is we want, if you're a believer in Jesus, we think that the Bible, maybe not, there's no verse in the Bible that states this clearly, but I think it's, it's implied all throughout the Bible that Christians are to be in a kind of committed relationship, a kind of committed, connected, accountable relationship with other believers. And I think that the implication there, especially in the New Testament, is this idea of meaningful membership in the local church, that we would know who we are, that we submit ourselves, our lives to, to a, a group of other believers, that we're known by the pastors and elders and shepherds, that we know other people, that we have a kind of responsibility. For here, here the way that works out is we have a membership process that we do, that we want to get to know you if you're a Christian. If you're not yet a believer, we're really glad that you're here. We're not trying to force that on you. We just want you to hear the gospel. We want you to come to faith in Jesus before you become a member of this church. But if you are a believer and nobody in this room really knows you, if none of the pastors or shepherds know you, then... I want to push on you a little bit and say that that's not a wise way to do life. Because life is, is really confusing and hard. And you can get to a place where Jeremiah is in a heartbeat because of sin in you and sin around you. Listen, listen to Colossians chapter 3. Listen to how Paul speaks of the Christian life. And then just hold the way you do the Christian life up against this scripture and, and see if there's any gap. And, and for all of us, there will be a gap. What I'm pushing on you, what I'm, what I'm exhorting you to do is try and minimize the gap between this picture that Paul paints for us and the way we actually live. Listen to Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Oh man, you have to bear with people in the local church. And have you ever considered that maybe that's part of God's design for our own sanctification? Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Verse 16 is an imperative that is, is, is for every Christian. In some way, you are to exhort, to teach, to admonish, to instruct. Whether it's through a formal teaching setting or just the way that you are living in community, we are all to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look, there's a gap between the way I live and that text. There's a gap between the way all of us live in that text. Here, here's, here's the thing I want to push on us pastorally is, is what, what, what it, would it look like for you in your life to narrow that gap? To be in a more formal, accountable, known relationship with other believers in a local church where you have to put up with them, where no church is perfect, I think that commends being meaningfully, meaningfully, meaningfully connected 
to a local church. Third reflection about hope forgotten. Just notice, and we've mentioned it a few times already, is that God is behind all of this with good purposes for his people. God's, God's the one that is doing this. So you, you may find yourself, it may be very, very confusing. Life may be hard. There may be a kind of bitter providence, providence against you. You may, have, you may have lost hope. But here's what we're going to discover in just a moment when we keep reading, is that God is behind all of this. When you can't see clearly, know, know that God is behind all of it. He's sovereign. He loves his children and he does what he does to wean them from this world and woo them to heaven. God, God loves his children and he will bring them into a place where he will strip them of every false hope so that they will finally look up and put their hope in Him. And just consider your life right now. Consider whatever's confusing in your life. I, I don't know the specifics, obviously, but I know that one of, I can, I can say with lots of biblical certainty, that certainly if you are His child, one of the things that God is wanting to do through that confusing situation in your life, which is a result of some combination of sin in you and sin around you, is to wean you from false hopes and woo you to the one true hope, which is Himself. You may not know the specifics, but if you know that, that can be like a a, a sycamore tree that you're hanging on to in the middle of the storm. Which brings us to the second, the second heading of this chapter. First was hope forgotten. The second is hope found. Hope found. And now we get to some of the most glorious verses in the Bible. Let me read to you verses 19 through 41. 19 through 41. So he takes a turn. Verses 1 through 18, he had forgotten hope. Verse 17, he says, I've forgotten what happiness is. My hope has perished. So is my endurance. Then look at verse 19. Remember, he now cries out. He's turning away from the situation. He's turning away from himself, and he's turning to God in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this, verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to those, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. In other words, young person, it's good for you to have to deal with it for a while. And everything doesn't just get given to you. It's good for you to have to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord, verse 31, will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. 
to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why, verse 39, should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. So here we have this beautiful explanation, this beautiful turning from Jeremiah looking at the circumstance and the situation inside of himself, outside of himself, to looking up, to seeing. Forgotten hope now becomes hope found. Some reflections on on hope found and why we can find hope in God. First is that God's love for his people is covenantal. God's love for his people is covenantal. What do I mean by that? It means that God's love for us, for Christians, for those that are trusting in his name, if you're a believer, is based on something stronger than our feelings, based on something stronger than our subjective feelings. It's based on a commitment that God has made to redeem a people to himself. So look, look again at verses 22 and 23. It says that these are some beautiful words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This, this, this concept of God's steadfast love. There's so much we can say about this word steadfast. It, it, it's speaking to the, the covenant that God has made to save a people. And this covenant isn't like a, a contract that God has made with us saying, I'll do this if you do this. Let's meet. Let's agree to terms. And if you break the terms, then the contract's canceled. If I break the terms, the contract's canceled. That's not the way God saves people. God enters into a covenant with us. And the difference between the covenant that God makes with us and the covenant that two people would make with each other is that God says, I'm going to uphold both ends of the covenant. I will love you. I will do all the work to save you. And even if you're faithless, I will remain faithful. So there's nothing you can do that can separate you from me. If I have saved you, if I've loved you, if I've chosen you, Israel, out of all the peoples of the earth, there's nothing that can unchoose you. There's nothing that can rip you from my hand. There's no way that I will ever stop loving you. That's what, that's what verse 22 is getting to. That's what Jeremiah is remembering. He's remembering the unconditional covenantal love of God for his people. In this sense, Israel, but in our sense, as believers in Jesus, he's saying, I've loved you not because you had anything to offer me. I loved you because I loved you. It's a steadfast love. It's a love that is, stands fast regardless of the circumstances. That's, so as, as you consider, as the world is confusing around you, what Jeremiah is encouraging us to do is to look away from ourselves to God's covenantal grace. And how does he describe this grace? He says that it's filled with mercies that are new every morning. Think about the beauty of that text. It's a, it's a fresh every day. It's not like we have to bank on stale grace. But God's mercies 
are new, it's fresh, it's, it's alive, it's, it's, it's active every morning in our lives. Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans, uh, he, he lived in the 1600s, and um, he's one of my favorite Puritans because of his writing, but also because it's popular now to, to I guess, among some people in our little stream of the church to, to sell portraits of Puritans. And I just love the little outfit that they put Richard Sibbs in every time. All right, he just, he just looks cool. It's like a little, little Lord Fauntleroy outfit, kind of like with a little, little bib. He looks like a three-year-old in a, in a, you know, getting dedicated or something. And he's like one of the greatest minds in the history of the church. But he said this. Listen to this. Richard Sibbs, Puritan from the 1600s, in a book called The Bruised Reed. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Thinking about God's steadfast covenant of love is to be reminded, and somebody in here I think needs to hear this today, that your sin, your disobedience, is not stronger than God's grace. I think, I, I think, as a consequence of this overly individualistic, overly self-esteem absorbed culture, we tend to value our feelings much more than the objective truth of the Bible. And it's a kind of idolatry in a way. It's a kind of saying, you know, I think God can save other people around me, but, but, but you don't know what I've done. And it's a kind of perpetual guilt. And what it is, is it's like we coddle we coddle our guilt to make ourselves feel better. And what it is, is a, it's a strange kind of salvation by works. Because if I, just, if, I, if I feel bad enough, if I show enough regret, if I show enough remorse, and maybe if I just hold on to this thing and I just get to this place where I say, oh, God could never save me. Strangely, we trick ourselves into thinking that that's kind of spiritual. But it's not. What we're worshiping in that situation is actually the power of the flesh or the power of sin rather than the power of grace. There's more mercy in Christ, much more than there is sin in you. And the thing about God's covenantal love is it means that God can never go against himself. He can't ever go against his word. Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit, have made a pact. They've made a covenant with one another before we were even created to save us. And there's nothing that can stop that mission. Listen to, listen to John chapter 6. Listen to Jesus letting us in on this pact that the Trinity made with one another even before creation in the fall. Listen to what Jesus says. John 6, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Listen to verse 37. Jesus is letting us in on the fellowship of the Trinity before creation, before the fall, before salvation. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit have made a deal to redeem you and it's going to happen. It's, <laughs> so it, if you are tempted to consider your own sin and your own situation as stronger than God's grace, come on now. <laughs> right? Right? And here's another thing. If right now you know yourself not to be a believer, and right now your heart is being stirred, and you're like, whoa, man, man the Lord's drawn me. Yeah, man. He's after you, bro. He's coming after you, and he's going to get you. He's going to get you. Right? So stop, like, stop swimming against the tide. You're like, you're, you're being, it's like a riptide. Just, just give yourself, turn from yourself and turn towards faith in Jesus right now. He gets all that he gets. Nobody gets out of his grip when he holds on to you. And that, that's, that's, that, that understanding of the grace, the unmerited, unconditional grace of the gospel is the epicenter. It's ground zero of where our hope is found. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. He didn't save me because of me, and he won't cast me off because of me. Second reflection on hope found is that, oh, only the Lord can satisfy. Only the Lord can satisfy. I think, I think two major categories of, 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 of sanctification struggles. Some of us have troubles with assurance, and I think that's what we just talked about addressing, just the covenantal love of the Lord, knowing that He saved you, not yourself. That will help your assurance. And then the second category that I think all of us struggle with on varying degrees is just our sanctification. Just still, we still, we still run after false gods. And this text points us away from that. Look at verse, verse, let me just read 22 through 24 again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Just think of a portion, like just think of a, a little child being given. Um, I think of my brother and I, and, and, and we had another friend that would hang out with us every day during the summer, and we would make cookies. My brother and I and my friend, my brother's friend, we would make cookies, and whoever made the cookies, it wasn't like from scratch. We were like, you know, middle schoolers at the time. We just like box cookies. And we would make cookies, and they made three dozen and so there were three of us, so we each got 12, and we would like gobble them up there like in 15 minutes. I mean, they're real healthy. There wasn't much else to do at El Central California in the summers in the late 70s. But we would make cookies, and then whoever made the cookies, whoever did the work that day to actually make the cookies, which was so dumb, I mean, it took like 10 minutes, you got the first pick, and then we'd have like a draft pick of the cookies. <laughs> and, you, you know, you'd pick, and you'd pick the big one. And we would, the fights that would ensue, you know, like, the, you've made a big, you know, just this, and we're talking about this minuscule amount of actual cookie 
crummage. And we would get it because we would want, we would just want more. We just I want more for myself. And what this text is saying is that what the Lord has given you, his, his portion, himself, all that he promises us in the gospel, all that he gives us through his son, it's, it's enough for us. Jeremiah's reminding us that when we see this, this sin around us, this sin in us, which makes life confusing, when we lift up our eyes and see that his love is covenantal, he will not lose us, then the next step is for us to know that the Lord is my portion. He alone can satisfy my soul. What does it mean, though? It's, that's, 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 it's good language. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But that sort of spiritual language that can hang up here, we need to do some work to make a statement like only the Lord can satisfy, the Lord is my portion. We need to do some work to pull that down into our, our daily lives. What does it mean to be, to be satisfied in the Lord? Some thoughts. I think it means to trust him. It doesn't mean, what it doesn't mean is that you get all that you think you want or deserve now. That's not what it means that the Lord is your portion. That's the error of many in, in, in kind of a health and wealth movement or a prosperity gospel. And, and I'm not just talking about these people on TV. I'm talking about versions of Christ, Christianity that try and make everything too awesome now. That, that's not what it means to be satisfied in the Lord. It's not what it means that he's our portion. It means that we, we look at the promises of his word that he will bring us all the way home, that we will be with him forever, and that it will be an unimaginable joy. We don't quite know what that will be like, but to be satisfied is to delay gratification and trust that God is good for his word. That's what verse 26 is pointing. As you look at verse 26 of our text, it says, after all this great promise, the Lord is my portion. But then verse 26 says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So the Lord is my portion does not mean that God just slops it all on your plate for you to chow down now. It means to be able to be satisfied to trust that what God has said he would do for his people to bring them to a place where they are glorified, where they're united, where we're with him forever, that even though we don't know what that experience will fully be like, we know, we trust God that it is better by far than we're experiencing now. And that, that longing for that promise even though we don't fully realize it now, obviously, that trust that God is good for his word, that trust and longing for that trust and living in the way that he's commanded us to, to receive that trust is the, is the epicenter, it's the basis of Christian maturity. It's what it means to be satisfied in God, not to get it all now, but to trust him that then is worth it. And seeing that will help us. It's, 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 it's the foxhole of our battle with sin. It's what will keep us from chasing after idols like money, power, and lust. Thomas Chalmers, another, another Puritan, wrote a, a wonderful sermon that I've quoted several times here. 
I won't quote it, just paraphrase, paraphrase his main thought. He says that, that the gospel, in the gospel, God gives us this expulsive, not explosive, but expulsive, meaning it expels this expulsive power of a new affection. And what God does when he saves a person is he takes out their old heart, he gives them a new heart, and with this new heart are new affections. And the way that we fight against old affections is not by gritting our teeth and just saying no to all of our former false gods and lusts and affections, but by having our old affections replaced with new affections and these new affections that come from a new heart that God gives long and are pointed towards trust in the future grace that God will give his people. And so the Christian life, most of it is about waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord that never comes now, but will most certainly come then. Do you see that? Christian maturity is waiting maturity. It's waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And friends, who can do that by themselves? I mean, we all, we, we can get this, but now we're all tempted. Tuesday comes, Thursday comes, and we're all still, we're like, we're, we're drawn towards our former affections, and we need one another to help, to help remind us of the, of the simple waiting on God's promise. I hope that helps somebody here today. And then finally, the final reflection is that hope is found only in Christ taking our place. I think Lamentations 3 is, like everything in the Bible, is ultimately points us to Christ, points us to the gospel. Hope can only be found by Christ taking our place. Let me, let me read the rest of the chapter quickly. Verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven you have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees my eyes Cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. Verse 55. Now think, let's make this transition. Jesus, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, becomes sin for us. He bears the wrath of God on the cross for us. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes the punishment of God for us and gives us his righteousness. And that, make that transition in your mind as we read 55 through the end. He says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, just as Jesus cries out on the cross. You heard my plea, verse 56. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. 
You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. So the second half of chapter 3 makes a transition from God punishing us. That's Jeremiah's perspective in Lamentations 1, 2, and 3, the first half. To now God taking up our cause and working on our behalf to rescue us from those around us and ultimately from himself. And what is this pointing to? What is this a shadow of? Friends, clearly it's pointing us to Christ who becomes sin for us, who takes God's wrath, who takes the consequences for our sin on the cross so that when we trust in Jesus, when we trust in Him who bore God's wrath for us, God judges Him on the cross and He's innocent, but He bears our sin and sin is removed and now we are vindicated in Christ and we rise with Him and God answers our prayer for mercy through Christ on the cross. This hope, this covenantal hope, this hope that only can satisfy us is ultimately found as this chapter points us to in Christ on the cross. That's where our hope is. That's where your hope must be, dear friend. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful chapter. Thank you for its brutal honesty. We all know the world is, is broken. We all know that we're broken. And so reorient our affections, Lord. Help us to look up. Bring us to the place you brought Jeremiah midway through this chapter where, where we would see that, that our only hope is in you. Help us each to call this to mind that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You are our portion. Therefore, we will hope in you. Do this for us. I pray for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.